Comedy is King with Danny Kaye goes to court. What else could he be but a jester? A celebration of royal pageantry and knightly honor. The court jester is king of humor in this fight for right. If he doesn't lose his head. If I die, just pray that I die bravely. Danny Kaye and Angela Lansbury star in Court Jester. Friday night at 8, 7 central during Comedy Week on the Family Channel Movie. Coming up next, it's the Bees Movies Bag Full of Holiday Memories special. Starring Danny Kaye, Linus Johns, Cecil Parker, and special guest, Jake Thomas. Bright and early through the smog of Los Angeles, an ageless face pierces the veil. He is a former last movie standing champion and the child Spielberg to my child Goldblum. He is Jake Thomas. How are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm good. Now I want to watch uh, Goldberg Babies. <laughs> that sounds like a great cartoon. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm doing I'm doing very well uh, coming out there. Um, I I hope it's okay if um, I, I I think my uh, cat has wandered here into the video store. So if you've got like some food or something, <laughs> she'd appreciate it. But uh, you know, you don't I'll have human sure she, food, let alone cat food, Jake. Yeah, make sure she goes outside of the bunker or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when Heather sent her request in, I truly could think of a better person. Uh, just simply because I don't know if any other, I don't know, six year old who was watching Danny K movies and eagerly embracing them. Uh, you were, you were a Turner classic movie kid before Turner classic movie was, was cool, man. If there had been a letterbox back in 1995, you would, you would have been the only like 10 year old on it or <laughs> <laughs> which would have freaked my parents out. Like, <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, get yeah. off the internet. It, what are you doing? You're 10. It would, it would have been on that, it would have been on a computer somewhere, you know, where your, your parents could have watched and like a little cubby in the kind of kitchen dining room area. That's right. That's right. Kids. We used to have one computer with internet access. It was the stone age. I have very fond memories of like spending afternoons at my grandparents' house and just kicking on American movie classics or turn classic movies and just letting it play. Yeah. And yeah, there was, there was actually a specific like time when I remember a Danny K marathon of sorts. So it included, I think this was a part of it. Um, they also had knock on wood where he plays like a ventriloquist who <laughs> is his, he like needs subconscious. He like his subconscious is leaking through his dummy or something like that. And then there's a secret life of Walter Mitty was a part oh, of that marathon. Yeah. And and all sorts of good stuff. Not only were you the uh, kind of classic movie aficionado, uh, at least in my life, but also you were a song and dance man. You starred in very many stage productions during our growing up years, uh, usually as the star of the show or the second to the star of the show. And a star was your brother, usually. So <laughs> you guys dominated. <laughs> you guys egotted when it came to local uh small private school <laughs> <laughs> musicals <laughs> the christmas and spring production <laughs> right yeah yeah 
Was I, there I, I, any bleed over from you watching Danny Kay? Like since you had all of, the, I guess what I'm saying, since you had all of this classic Hollywood stuff in your head, did that inform any of your childhood performances? Oh, it had to have. Um, there was, I remember this one, one play where like they had, they were playing opening music, which is weird. Cause it was like a overture that was pre-recorded, but like the choir teacher just was just like, you'll be on stage alone and just do something funny to the music. So I was like, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was just making up stuff. That I thought, what would Danny Kay do? What would Donald O'Connor do? Yeah. What would, yeah. What would, what would those guys do? So it's just kind of like made up something. And Disclaimer to the audience, no formal dance training whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you could like, run up a wall and uh, <laughs> do a flip off of a wall. And, oh, yeah. Neo you know. style. That, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this, uh, this was a school that had no problem allowing children to do very, very dangerous stunts uh, for productions. <laughs> And kids, the morning of the like annual Christmas show, the choir teacher had the the pull to literally yank all the kids in choir at every right. age in elementary school through high school out of class That's throughout right. the morning to do a to a tech and dress rehearsal. So you basically didn't have school that day, and the other teachers just had to deal with it. You and, remember being that day? I think that day was the whole day, but that week of the show. It was like half, you guys had half days the whole week. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah and which, the band kids and the choir, yeah. the choir kids, band kids, and then the kids who were like in the cast of these plays, like had no class. It was, it, that yeah. was basically Christmas break before Christmas break, but you had to right. earn it by memorizing lines and stuff. Well, <laughs> that inspired me to try out one year, uh, only one year. It just so happened to be the year that lady quit her job. <laughs> And, and the year we didn't do a musical. <laughs> we didn't do a musical, which was better for everybody. Uh, and I, we don't have time for it today, but maybe on a future Patreon episode, we'll talk about that production and our experience on it. And how, uh, just as a little teaser, they tried to convince me to rappel off, off of a balcony, not with any sort of rig, not with any sort of rappelling equipment or climbing equipment, not a single carabiner in sight. Just a rope tied around a brass uh, 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 railing on a hundred-year-old balcony. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, just go ahead. We'll just wrap this around your waist and you could just descend down from the balcony to make your entrance for the production. That was the least strange thing that they asked me to do during that. So we'll have to talk about that one someday. But we're not here to talk about our childhood memories as uh, bizarre and fun joyful and traumatic as they were we're here to talk about the court jester starring danny Kay, and i think it's about time we play a little game we like to call pass or recast let's start with danny Kay. he plays hubert hawkins the eponymous court jester uh and uh, a fill-in for giacomo uh the jester of kings and king of jesters pass or recast jake recast just kidding <laughs> uh he yeah, is i don't the, think the movie works without it he right? is Get this recast. movie yes yeah. yeah no yeah he's the movie because he's got you know compared to other people he's got a leading man comic energy that was yep. actually kind of rare because back then you were either one or the other but danny k was both so he is the court jester when he flips into the suave giacomo hypnotized 
Nuke Tails, Svengali, Hullabaloo, whatever that he becomes. Basically, when he becomes Errol Flynn, it's believable. He yes. is comedic all the way through the movie. And that's what we know him for. He's a song and dance man and a comedy guy. He's that three, you know, that triple threat or whatever. But when he has to play suave, he is actually believable. And it almost makes me wonder, and maybe this isn't his filmography. I'm no Danny K expert. But I, I almost makes me wonder, did he, did he ever play a more straight character? I don't think he did. Well, I think there's this one movie. I forget the title. If it's three coins or five coins in a fountain or a penny for your wish. or It has something to do with coins in the title. I should have looked that up prior to it. But it was three a more dramatic. Three coins in a fountain, each <laughs> one seeking happiness. It was, it was, he was like playing a more serious father role. Uh, there were still songs in it, but um, he, like, it wasn't necessarily as comic, but it was a bit more like of a genuine dramatic role. Not necessarily romantic, but yeah, he yeah. can pull that off. Yeah. What about Glennis Johns as Captain slash May Jean? Now, it's great because they made her a captain, but they also just only exclusively refer to her as May Jean. And it's like, well, it's like, okay, kind of uh, kind of forward thinking and uh, still kind of regressive. What, what do you think of her as the love interest slash kind of hero? The Black oh, Widow of this MCU film, is it? Oh, pass. She's uh, fantastic. Uh, you forget that she's going to be the mom from Mary Poppins in like 10 years from when this movie Holy came crap. Out. She's the mom from Mary Poppins? That's the mom from Mary Poppins. Sis, you know, Sister Suffragette. That's, that's the mom who's trying to fight for women's voting rights in that movie. You want to know a dirty secret, Jake? <laughs> I've never I seen do. Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> 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 I've never I've never seen Mary Poppins, at least all the way through. I think I probably saw it in fits and starts, but I've never seen it all the way through. Yeah. Um, Glennis Johns, by the way, I found this out after watching it. Um, <clears throat> the only surviving cast member of the court jester to this day. Oh, she's still with us, huh? She's still I, I, I double checked that I was like, oh, I don't see a I don't see a, a date of her death here on IMDb and next year she will turn one hundred years old. Wow. Yeah. I think given what she's given to do in this, I think she's perfect for the role. I think she's absolutely perfect as uh, she's very striking, obviously, which is part of it. But she's kind of believable. And they also, uh, speaking of having people repel from ceilings on shoddy contraptions, they have her repel, <laughs> repel on like a rickety swing with two little people side by side holding, holding a baby doll. I had to rewind it because I was like, she's not holding a real baby. <laughs> she, but it was just a, it was a nice cut. The editing was done very well and it's like a kind of a it's a doll and then she's got a real baby at, at basically height level so and i'm just like she's not strapped in or nothing they just put her rigged her up to the ceiling and just dropped her so yeah uh what about the of course famous basil rathbone oh, basil perfect. rathbone perfect sir casting. ravenhurst yeah yes perfect, perfect casting because this was along with classic musical comedies uh some of my favorite films from the bygone era were the swashbuckling films of michael curtiz so mm. like captain blood and the adventures of robin hood and uh not done by michael curtiz but the mark of zorro with tyrone mm. power like those great sword fighting movies and basil rathbone was the bad guy in all of those prior yeah. to his playing sherlock holmes in the 1940s so he brings in the legitimacy. Like as soon as you see him as the bad guy, suddenly you're like, oh, okay, this is, yep. you know, it's, it's, I was trying to think of the modern equivalent where you cast the legitimate 
actor known from the serious versions of those movies now into the spoof version of those movies. And I don't think there's a really good modern equivalent to that because they don't really make like movies like this anymore. But I no. guess the closest would be when you're getting people like Leslie Nielsen in Airplane back in 1980. Yeah. Like, since he was the captain of the ship in the Poseidon Adventure, putting him in a comedy disaster movie brings a lot of legitimacy to it. Um, but, you know, now people just think of him as a comic actor, so they even think forget that that was kind of a striking bit of casting. But yeah, it's the same with Basil Rathbone here. And he plays it um, completely genuine. Like, he, his character is not in yes. a comedy. No. Uh, which makes it even better. Um, so he's great. Yeah, he's playing he's playing this villainous role as he would other villainous roles he played. Yeah, he is the he's same time. playing he's playing Guy of Gisborne from uh the from the Adventures of Robin Hood again, yep. but this time Robin Hood just happens to say, I can sing, I can shoot and I can toot. Ain't I cute? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about the late great uh just recently departed Angela Lansbury as Princess Gwendolyn? Uh she does fine. I was I, it's funny, like remembering, I think when I rewatched this, I was like, oh, I remember like the hypnotized love story being a bigger part than mm-hmm. it, I guess it really was. So she's got, she's much more of a supporting role. The weird thing about it is seeing her at that age, it's like finding a, an old photo of your grandparents in the attic of when they were in their 20s. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, I know that face, but it's way younger than I'm placing it. <laughs> okay, so th- th- uh, you know, I, I I've I've seen this movie a bunch of times actually, and I I always forget that she's in it for some reason. I never it never locks into my brain that Angela Lansbury is is in this film, and every time she pops on screen, I'm like, I'm always astounded by the fact that everything every other part of her looks completely different than Murder She Wrote. Or Mrs. Teapot, obviously, you know, but the voice is kind of the same. But her face, other than it being younger, is exactly the same. Yes. It's Angela Lansbury's face. <laughs> it looks like a deep fake. It looks like it someone does. deep faked Angela Lansbury onto, I don't know, Veronica Lake or something. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, who whose body is this? Because that's Angela Lansbury's face. And it is it is an uncanny valley unto itself. But yeah, I think she's really good in this. She's a bit of a villain. She's a heel in this kind of, you know, she's constantly threatening to either throw herself off the tower or murder people <laughs> if she doesn't get her way. So she's yeah. She's she she does a good she does very well at playing kind of a bitch, which you don't expect from Angela Lansbury. You're like, no, you're not you're a murder she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Not You're murder Jessica. she not murder she plots, murder yes. she does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess she is writing murders, you know, but <laughs> murder she plots, yeah. Um, what about Cecil Parker as King Roderick? I'm gonna jump in here and just tell you that as much as I love Danny Kay, and I really do, uh I think he's my favorite part of this movie. The king? The yes. evil king. Yes. He's well, what's funny there is um with that actor, like you can't it's a comedy. So the villain can't be too like he's got to be yeah kind of like with the way Basil Rathbone is like a like a proper gentlemanly like you know who gets offended or upstarted or like the king can't be too serious because then it, it, it get, I guess it doesn't really work that much plus like the character of the king himself 
that opening narration of the movie, like they open up and they say, like, here's the king riding down the street after mm-hmm. butchering the royal family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a dark, it's dark. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> like, Wait, what? And yeah. it, he's kind of and but he he doesn't he doesn't necessarily come across that way. But um I think the like, yeah, like the scene, he's like he, he almost plays it like a like that CEO in a classic comedy who's like a bit clueless, but yeah like you know obsessed and focused on just the the vain things or you know the wenches in the castle or something like that and he he's certainly he doesn't come across as medieval in my opinion but he comes across as almost like a like a like a just a bad boss maybe like a a medieval michael scott i don't know yeah (laughs) i here's the thing i could 100 percent see this character in like disney's robin hood yes Oh yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. He feels yeah. like a character out of that, and the, my the, the Prince John who's sucking his thumb and calling yes. for his mommy, kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. One of my favorite lines in the movie that got, gets the biggest laugh out of me, is, I have no idea why, is during the joust when he says, "Get that horse back under that idiot," <laughs> <laughs> and he says it with such like sincerity. He's so outraged, and he's so angry, and he's just shouting directions. You, get that horse back under that idiot. (laughs) You know, he also, he kind of feels like an antagonist out of a Marx Brothers film. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, like like you said, like, like I'd imagine him in a movie where the Marx Brothers are running a department store, and he's the guy that owns the department store, and he's kind of a, kind of a jerk, and you know, just, yeah, I could totally, totally see him in that. The big store. I've seen that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He doesn't have a great part in this, but I'd be remiss, especially with you, if I didn't bring up Alan Napier as Sir Brockhurst, which I almost wondered if that is a pun. (laughs) It's Brockhurst instead of Brockwurst. But we know him from what, Jake? What will we know him from? He was the original Alfred the Butler from yeah. the 1966 Adam West TV show version of Batman. He was Alfred. And other than his nose, unlike Angela Lansbury, I would have never known it was him. No. I, I saw his name in the credits and I was like, oh, wow, I'll, I'll need to keep an eye out. And, and, and like after the first scene, I was like, well, I, the only thing I can assume <laughs> is he must be the tall one. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he's... I remember him being a taller actor, so he's yeah, yeah the tall of the three guys that uh, are opposed to Ravenhurst and eventually get poisoned by the, the princess's maiden. Yeah, there we go. All right, well, let's dive into the plot a little bit. So like you said, we've got a throne usurping tyrant named Roderick who sends his goons, Lord Ravenhurst, or his goon, Lord Ravenhurst, to kill the rightful king of England and the entire royal family, which is a great opening, like you said, for a... Uh, a frivolity comedy song and dance. <laughs> There's a not uh, Robin Hood because he probably wasn't yet in the public domain. Vigilante called the Black Fox, and he's he's a gimmick and he's had gimmick infringing merry men uh, rescue the true heir, which is an infant son who is marked with a purple pimpernel. If you don't know what that is, it's a flower birthmark on his baby booty. This is a reoccurring gag throughout the movie that they're going to keep pantsing this baby. And showing his butt to people, and people bow to the butt of the baby. Uh, Roderick Stooges are Lord Brockhurst, which is, of course, as you said, Alan Napier, Lord Finsdale, and Lord Pertwee. 
and they convinced the king to seek an alliance with Sir Griswold of McElwain in exchange for marriage with his daughter Gwendolyn. See, Lord Sir Griswold, the titles are going to screw me up here, but Sir, Sir Griswold wants a lady. He wants to be married. And Gwendolyn objects because she wants true romance and love because that's what's been prophesied to her by the castle witch. Where? <laughs> this is a big setup and a lot of plot. And some of these factors will come into play. Uh, does this need all this, Jay? <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> um, I... Like I realized in rewatching the movie recently uh, <laughs> that I think when I had watched it at a younger age, I think I usually started maybe about 25 to 30 minutes into the movie when he finally arrives at the yes. castle. <laughs> and literally yeah. I remember like, Oh, what? Like thinking like asking my old brother, like, Oh, what's this? And like, he summed up what was going on in like two sentences and I could still pretty much follow the movie and find it funny. And then in rewatching it, I was like amazed, like it's a good, like they're really loading up the backstory of <laughs> the what the King's up, what the yeah. King has done, what the King is trying to do, what the princess wants. Uh, they, they do the great bait and switch at the beginning where Danny Kay is singing and dancing as the Fox. And that's right. No, he's just entertaining the men in the Fox's clothes. And then the camp has to scatter. And then they have to set up the love story between him and Glynis Johns, yep. which kind of starts and arcs and gets wrapped up all in one scene at the beginning <laughs> in the carpenter shed. Yeah, so it's it like really one, does. Of, one of the fastest <laughs> moving love scenes I've seen. <laughs> And it's all rather serious. Like, I, like, like the first in rewatching it, the first time, like I really like uh, laughed out loud was when he was pretending to be the old man in the cart, yes. And Glennis Johns was pretending to be mute, and so she yes. was signing. And the guard asked, like, "What does she say?" And Danny Kay said, "She says no." And then yeah. the guard's like, "Why did that take so long?" And Danny Kay said, "She stutters." Yes, and that, that's the first great joke of the movie. Hundred percent. Yeah, that was yeah. Um, but like, I like I don't feel like the movie really gets up and running until Giacomo comes into it, where it's yep. just like, "Oh, you're going to be the jester," and they knock him out, and then he takes his place. But once you're in the midst of like the movie proper when he arrives at the castle disguised as the jester whom Basil Rathbone believes will also be the assassin that's going to work his own machinations into play. Yeah. You realize like, oh, this script and this movie is one of the greatest examples of all these different conflicting uh, motives and plots that are kind of like all ramming mm -hmm. together onto this one somewhat clueless character who is is a puppet in all these things and doesn't really know it but they find a way to keep like i don't know like if this was an improv scene like they keep you know playing the same games but like you know pulling all the pulling every single joke you can out of like a single very simple yep. setup and i guess you kind of need all that backstory setup for it all to make sense yeah um maybe you could have like found a way to condense or streamline a little bit. Or as I think, like you could have probably taken the love story aspect and maybe spread out its development throughout their time at the castle. Since, you know, they're, you know, they keep crossing paths while they're there. Yeah. But I mean, like the, the actual like playing out of the jokes and just because like 
it's all like everything is basically there's a misunderstanding here. There's a misunderstanding yep. there. Here's a misunderstanding here. Like it's all like we're pretty rapid fire and it, it's maybe it's just tough to squeeze in another like scene between him and Glennis Johns that like shows that maybe she's changed her opinion. He's a great guy and or like the same yeah. thing uh, later on in the movie. So they're like, oh, let's just hurry up and do that and then just get to the jokes, jokes, jokes and the songs and the jokes for like the, the main duration of this. Well, the story is, and we'll have to back up, but I'll go through things a little bit, like beat for beat for people who haven't seen it, because I'm guessing some of our audience hasn't. And trust me, it's going to get confusing. (laughs) But the movie is like classic situational comedy, right? And so it's like situation one, and then a turn and an escalation, and then a turn and an escalation and a turn. And all the way, basically, until the end of the movie, they keep adding different random stuff. I mean, it's not enough that he's has to pretend to be somebody else, to be an imposter, to be a spy, to do this thing, to to get the key, to do this. That should be enough for a comedy movie. It's also that he then gets hypnotized. It's also then that this happens and that happens. It's his, his, at one point his armor gets magnetized by a bolt of lightning. It's every conceivable Gilligan's Island episode situation thrown into one movie on top of each other. And Slash I, that sounds, like a modern family episode. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, it, how much more can we understandings? Yeah. How much more misunderstanding can we cram into this? So yeah, like you said, when we first get introduced to Danny Kay, he comes out as the black Fox, but he's not the black Fox. He's just the black Fox's carny minstrel named Hubert Hawkins, who likes to dance and sing and do minstrel stuff. He used to be part of a circus or something, but um, he's joined the revolution. He's joined the, the rebels try to overthrow the unlawful king of, of England and restore the, the rightful infant king to the throne. Uh, and we've come to find out not only is he not the black fox, he is just the caretaker of the infant king. He's the nanny. Uh, uh, May Jean is not the nanny. She's a captain in the black fox's rebel alliance. He's the caretaker, which is supposed to lead to some sort of jokes because he's a guy taking care of a baby. Um, out of nowhere he decides to bring some little people who they do not call little people they in the credits are credited as the midgets Um, little people acrobats to the black foxes rebel camp to join the revolution but first to join a dance number uh the black fox dislikes little people and sends them packing he's like we don't have enough food for these people um I wanted to say only going to eat half as much, but still they don't have enough food. Meanwhile, Roderick finds out that the baby is alive. And so the rebels have to flee the woods because he, there's a spy and he figures out where their camp is. And then the Fox sends Hawkins with captain May Jean and the baby out on their own. They do disguise themselves as wine merchants to take the baby to safety. And like I said, Danny Kay as the senile winemaker is like an actual transformation. He doesn't really look like Danny Kay and the performance is phenomenal. And yeah, the, the first big laugh that I have in my notes is the, she stutters line that to yeah. me is like, that's where the comedy starts to kind of ramp up. Um, also we're in full haze code era here of Hollywood and they're in this barn and it is a rainstorm and they start canoodling a little bit like you said it's the fastest love story turn arc in the history of movie it really is it all happens within like two and a half minutes but at one point yeah at one point he's like boy it's wet in here and she's like very and i'm like 
that's Hayes code innuendo if I've ever <laughs> ever seen it because they're talking in not so coded language about the possibility of having sex, although they use the term marriage, but we can tell from the body language they're talking about being intimate because she she's like, well, here we are thinking about our needs when the revolution has to be won. And the gambit of this movie is basically this. Made Captain Jean will not sleep with, a.k.a. Mary Hawkins, until Roderick is overthrown, which is giving him the motivation even more to join the revolution. She wants to see, quote, the babe on the throne. And, uh, and she comes up with this very quick scheme out of nowhere <laughs> that they're going to infiltrate the palace, get this key, get it to the Black Fox, overthrow the king, put the baby on the throne. And then it just so happens that Giacomo of the continent, and I, I promise this is not a joke, I promise that I had to rewind it because when he walks in, Jake, I thought he said Giacomo the continent. Uh, Gene knocks out Giacomo and tells Hawkins to steal his identity and find a secret key for a passage to the castle. There is a rebel confederate in the palace and Hawkins must use a secret whistle, secret call, and the, the confederate will signal the fox and they'll take the castle and so forth and so on. So Hawkins heads to the castle. Gene travels on alone. But in our first twist, she's captured by the king's men who are ordered to bring the fairest wenches to the king's court. Lord Ravenhurst tells a friend that Giacomo is actually an assassin, which is another twist, whom he hired to kill Brockhurst, Finsdale, and Pertwee. The third twist is that a wild narrator appears as narrates to, to explain to us all these plot machinations and then never shows up again. There's no more narration before or after this, but it's getting confusing, so we needed a little bit of narration. The narrator doesn't necessarily necessarily say anything that isn't said in dialogue also, but I, I think they were just like, people are getting confused because I'm sure they had early test screenings and people were confused yeah. on some stuff, so they just had to throw that in for two scenes. Who's Giacomo? Because <laughs> <laughs> the narrator literally tells you what you're seeing on screen, where, you know, yes. ex except for the beginning part where he says, like, here's the king who killed the royal family, which they say later on in, in the following scene right after that. He's like, yeah. she was riding along when suddenly the king's men snatched her, and you watch it happening, and you're like, <laughs> and then he just never hear from him again. Yeah. Nope. In our fourth twist, Gwendolyn is kind of a bitch. She's big mad that her castle witch Griselda divined wrongly, and she isn't going to marry a winsome singing romantic per the devil-born prophecy. She's going to marry a lout, Sir Griswold, who's, I guess, just fat. I, I think that's why she's against He's fat. Uh, okay. Uh, Gwendolyn decides to kill Griselda for lying to her until Griselda promises that Giacomo is her prophesied lover, which is actually Hawkins. Hawkins, unaware of all of these things, enters the castle singing and tries to make contact with his rebel confederate. In yet another twist, Ravenhurst happens to be standing in front of the confederate, and so it appears he's the one giving the signal. So Ravenhurst, okay, folks, so Ravenhurst. Well, they also thinks, give each other that look. <laughs> yes, yeah, because Ravenhurst thinks Hawkins is Giacomo. And he thinks Giacomo is there to kill the other lords. And Hawkins thinks Ravenhurst is a lord who is also a rebel. So when they speak to each other on the sly, it makes sense, even though it's all a big cluster. Get it? Got it? Good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> is that the first use of get it, got it good? Is this where it comes from? 
Uh, according to IMDb, yeah, this is the understood beginnings of get get, uh, get it, got it, good, which is yeah, it, that's a phrase that's entered the lexicon so deeply that people don't remember where it started from. Which is kind of amazing, right? Because I certainly would have said get it, got it, good, and would have heard it a thousand times. But I, I, I was using that phrase long before I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, we we get one of our first tongue twisters, which I would say is if there is a source code to at least what your funny bone was in 1998, tongue twisters would have been it, Jake. <laughs> this the Duchess, the Duke, and the Doge. Uh, this is the first of this sort of like almost vaudevillian routine that this movie's famous for. Uh, does this still strike your funny bone? Because I'll be honest with you, that this kind of wordplay has never quite been funny to me. I, I get the talent involved in it and the skill, but but um, I think it's just, I'm missing a part of my brain that's like, this is high high comedy. But does it still, does it still make you laugh? It's fine. Um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Like, like this movie certainly loves to play with those types of turns of the phrase and yeah probably because danny k was so like good at doing them fast they wanted to use that as much as possible so yeah like you said this is just the first of several of those several to be honest get it got it good is like a small one that they that he can do with multiple characters throughout um but i don't know like if anything i'm I'm more surprised that none of these tongue twisters have been sampled in modern hip hop songs. Cause like that's yeah. totally doable. Like yes. kids on TikTok could be popping and locking to the flagon with the dragon <laughs> missed opportunity. The Duchess, the Duke and the Doja cat. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's that, there's that small niche out there who are TikTok users and influencers who are also big court jester fans. It's a, <laughs> a very small venn diagram overlap but it's got to be out there somewhere giacomo i mean hawkins is appointed to judge the wenches for the king and yet another twist and he in the midst of him going to judge the wenches to determine the fairest of all the wenches he's then bewitched by the witch he's now the audience participant in his own las vegas hypnotist routine now the power of newtail suggestion he sets off to bone mrs teapot Jean, as a wench, runs into hypnotized Hawkins as Giacomo, who doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's keeping kayfabe and slips him the key. Roderick arrives and thinks Giacomo selected Jean as his latest lady. If you don't understand any of that, then I don't know what to tell you. Watch the movie. Angela Lansbury has, has had the same face for 200 years, like we said, and this, this just freaked me out. Every time she pops on screen, I'm just freaked out. This, I don't know what came first, either chicken or the egg but I get major Looney Tunes vibes off of this movie. This is, this feels like it could have been an extended Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. Although uh, I don't think Danny, well, Bugs would sometimes be put on his heels, but he was usually a little bit more confident than Danny Kay. He wasn't really a. Bugs uh, was always in control of the situation. Yeah. No, like Daffy could lose control of the situation and, but he played more of a fool. Um, This, yeah, no, but I, I get what you're coming out with that for sure. Yeah. Hawkins, Giacomo, Giacomo, Hawkins. Oh, does this movie have too many twists? I don't know because folks were only halfway through this plot and there's more to come. 
Turns out any snap of anybody's finger actually makes or breaks Griselda's spell on Hawkins. So there's just uh, extenuating circumstances where people in a scene will snap their fingers at each other. This happens repeatedly throughout the film. And then it stops happening because I guess they felt the bit had run itself to the ground. But um, this is just all an excuse for Danny Kaye to be able to flip back and forth between personas and do kind of multiple types of physical comedy where he can play the fool and play Errol Flynn, basically, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and that's where the humor comes from. And he does an excellent job of, of, of doing this. Um, Hawkins receives his orders to kill the three lords from Ravenhurst while he's under the spell to be this brave, you know, swashbuckler, basically. And uh, Hawkins forgets all of this once the spell is undone. He falls asleep. And then the, the actual confederate for the rebellion, his name is Fergus, Fergus gives him the basket with the baby, but before he can get it to safety, Hawkins is called before the king. He manages to distract the king and the crowd from noticing the basket. They well receive 100% vaudevillian performance of like, this is the court jester's version of make him laugh, where he's just talking about being an entertainer and how he's actually was a very depressed boy (laughs) (laughs) who had no sense of humor. It was not funny at all. When I was a lad, I was gloomy and sad as I was from the day I was born. When other babes giggled and gurgled and wiggled, I probably was loudly forlorn. My friends and my family looked at me clamorly, thought there was something amiss. When others found various antics hilarious, all I could manage was this. Oh, this, <laughs> oh, this, <laughs> oh, this. <laughs> my father, he shouted, he needs to be clouded. His teeth on a wreath, I'll hand him. My mother, she cried as she rushed to my side to reproach, and you don't understand him. So they sent for a witch with a terrible twitch to ask how my future impressed her. She took one look at me and cried, <laughs> What else could he be but a jester? A jester? A jester? A funny idea, a jester. Griselda, meanwhile, poisons the three Lord's Cups to prevent the alliance, and Ravenhurst believes that Hawkins, who he thinks is Giacomo, killed them. Griswold arrives, but Gwendolyn declares her love for Giacomo, who's actually Hawkins, and Hawkins is arrested and jailed by the king. Ravenhurst learns that Giacomo never arrived and concludes that Hawkins must be the Black Fox, there's another twist, having sabotaged the alliance. Ravenhurst convinces Roderick to rush Hawkins to the trials to become a knight so he can duel Griswold ostensibly so Griswold can kill the jester, but really so the Black Fox can eliminate Griswold. <laughs> Are you following along? Here's, here's the thing. <laughs> um, all, of, all, of this, all of this plot twisting and layering would be a bit yeah. of a headache if it wasn't so doggone funny. Because... Yes. Because the whole reason why all this stuff is happening is so that all these crazy misunderstandings and twists have proper motivation. Like, like, yes. like when Griswold challenges uh, Giacomo slash Hawkins to a duel, like, understandably, Hawkins reacts like uh, afraid because he's like, wait. You know, like, because the princess is like, I'm in love with Giacomo. And he's like, wait, no, 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 no. And he's scared of Griswold. But you've got to have Glynis John saying, like, no, no, challenge him to a duel. And the fox will come and take your place. And he's like, yeah. okay. And then that allows him to come back and, again, kind of be like that. Oh, how dare you upstart and, like, act act brave, even though he's, you know, yes. he's feeling rather cowardly. And th- that's what, like, all 
all of this, you know, and then like you need a reason for Basil Rathbone to want to, you know, quickly get Danny Kay through the knighthood ceremony. Uh, so he needs to believe that, oh, I can take Grav Griswold with this person if he is the fox. So you need to have that yeah. plot twist. It, like you said, if someone's listening to this and they haven't seen it, we're, we're, we're spouting the same kind of gibberish. It all makes sense when, it, when it's played out. And I do want to say that I love how when he is under the spell of Griselda and he's swinging from window to window, how it, uh, it's like the same shots of him swinging around. And he lands at the right window at the right time. That that does strike me as kind of a, a Looney Tunesy kind of scenario. Yes. Yeah. Um, all of this, all of this plot structure that's in this, all of the, it's all structure just hang bits on. That's what it's really there for, is to provide some kind of internal logic within the movie to put Danny Kay, aka Hawkins, aka Giacomo, into the most absurd situation possible and watch him try to sing and dance his way out of it. Basically. Mm-hmm. How is he? Go- oh my gosh. How's he going to, what's he going to do now? That's, that's the joy of this movie. Does any of it really matter? No. Do we ever really care about this baby's bottom and the purple pimpernel and who's going to be the King of England? We don't. What we care about is what's Danny Kay going to do next. Is he going to sing? Is he going to dance? Is he going to tell some jokes? Is he going to stumble upon himself? Is he going to be the confident? heroic character is he going to snap out of it at the wrong time it's just a confluence of events to to maximize humor and entertainment and i think at the end of the day this movie is extremely successful at that in in the way that a lot of these movies that are kind of farcical in 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 a, in a way uh don't always work you know because it just it's like ah whatever it, it, if the bits don't work then it gets a, all the plot machinations get pretty annoying yeah I think and, the bits and, and it's work so much- here it's so much smarter than your typical like slapstick in a period um, movie from specifically that era of Hollywood where you'd take like a classic comedian and put them in a medieval setting. Like um, what comes to mind is I think Abbott and Costello had their Jack and the Beanstalk, which um, you know is, has like funny bits in it, but it's, it's not as there's, it lacks kind of the kineticism that this movie does where it just keeps, uh, mounting and you know thing like the the gags keep amplifying specifically because the plot is twisting and turning so much without his knowing what's going on okay writer director performer improv actor comedian jake thomas this is why you're here your moment has come <laughs> at the tournament Griselda poisons one of the drinks and tells Hawkins which one it is because she's trying to kill Griswold. Because if Hawkins, who she thinks is Giacomo, dies, she dies because uh, Gwendolyn will kill her. So uh, Griselda is the witch. So the witch poisons one of the cups. This is the famous vessel with the pestle routine. Go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the vessel with the 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 pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle and the chalice from the palace has the brew. That is true. (laughs) There you go. No, they broke the chalice from the palace. (laughs) So the pellet with the poisons and the flag and with the dragon and the vessel with the pestle has the brew. That is true. (laughs) Easy. 
easy does it. The tree will get trimmed, the dinner will get cooked, and the gifts will get wrapped. If you take your time instead of a drink or drugs, remember, easy does it. One of Griswold's men overhears and warns Griswold about the poison, and he and Hawkins both struggle to remember which of the glasses is poisoned, and then end up not drinking it at all. That's right, yeah, because <laughs> once that gag is done, the king's like, there'll be no drinks, just going with the joust. Which <laughs> <That's right. laughs> completely justifies that like any plot advancements is all just to set up a gag, and once that gag is played out, that plot is over. <laughs> Speaking of... Exactly what you just said. Hawkins' armor is struck by lightning, which makes it temporarily magnetic, which only exists long enough for him to be like uh, magnetically attached to Griswold as they're marching to their horses. And then that's over. Well, here's my question, actually. So (laughs) it was kind of unclear in how it was directed, but I was like Hawkins wins the tournament. Spoilers. Yeah. um, Because he has a mace and I was because he like swings it or like. No, sorry, Griswold's mace sticks to Hawkins' shield, and he gets yanked off his horse. So I wasn't sure if that was because of the spikes on the mace or because the shield and armor had been magnetized, and it yanked him off his horse. So I I think maybe they could have clarified that, but I kind of assumed that the the magnetizing actually played into his winning of the tournament. That's a very good point. I had the same uh, question. I was like, is this, yeah, is it just, he just got stuck or is he stuck because of the magnetism? I, I, I don't know, but let's just say it is the magnetism. That's how he won. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> because I, that makes more sense. Some yeah. of those magnet tricks for the time are really yeah. great. Like the, the pliers yeah. that keep flying to his leg and then he like pulls them off and sets them down. Like that's not string work. I'd be, or like the helmet that just, when he sticks his hand out and an Iron Man mm-hmm. frees right to him, like, <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, it's looking back, it's like, how did they do the help? Like, some of those things were just like yanks out of someone's hand and, and something like that. It is it pretty impressive. Yeah, there's some impressive work in here. Like, when they're running him through the gauntlet to make him a knight to justify putting him into this jousting, this sort of triathlon between the two of them. The winner gets the princess's hand in marriage or whatever, uh, the mortal combat. Uh, I. You know, they, they're done doing speed speed up photography, basically, to do some of these gags. And um, I think they go to that well one too many times when they're doing the march back and forth and back and forth because it's kind of herky-jerky. Uh, and I'm like, ah, okay, like, eh, maybe twice is enough. Yeah. Because <laughs> they do it like six times. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we get it. Uh, okay, all right. Um, but, yeah, I think there's there's it's a pretty good-looking movie. It's very well shot, well, uh, good sets, you know, it is of its era, uh, and in some ways a little bit of a throwback. Um, but it it it's a pretty pretty well made movie, especially. I'm just I've been on the record of saying I think the '50s, uh, and now Tarantino has agreed with me. But uh, I said it first, folks. I <laughs> think the '50s are the worst era of films that I've ever seen. I I really don't like most movies from the 1950s. Um, uh, barring this one, I think that this is like it's it's almost like a throwback to like. Um, the bigger studio comedies that would have existed, you know, in the thirties and forties. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, and yet kind of modern. I, I mentioned time. adventures of Robin hood. That's from 1938 and was an early technicolor yeah. movie, but like the way this is shot and the way that movie is shot are completely similar. And, yeah. and one is a slapstick musical comedy. The other one's like uh, an Academy award nominated for best picture action adventure movie, but they look exactly the same. So they mimic yeah. that style and everything to a T. Yep. 
So uh, Hawkins slash Giacomo defeats Griswold because of magnetism. And then instead of killing him, he decides to spare his life and sends him away. Ravenhurst finds the baby and exposes Hawkins as a traitor. However, the real Black Fox finally shows up with his little people through a secret passage. They rescue Hawkins. Boy, the little people get in there real quick, but it takes the Black Fox forever <laughs> to get in his gimmick could, infringing merry men. They could use the secret the tunnel, and, and the others had to travel <laughs> by the coast, I guess. Oh, man. It takes them forever to show up in this movie. And then even when they do show up, okay, at this point, forward the black fox is utterly irrelevant to this movie <laughs> like he like shows up and like you kind of see him in the background and then at the end he kind of delivers a three quarters of a speech and then it's again the, the, he's just like a, a facsimile of robin hood that they could use to create more confusion temporarily for a plot point it doesn't really matter yeah. this is the danny k show um this is how this stuff shakes out gene uh clubs the door guard and tells lowers the gate to let the black fox army into the castle uh threatened by gwendolyn Griselda hypnotizes hawkins again to become a sword master and he duels with ravenhurst and then the spell is accidentally switched on and off several times yet again for the gag finally hawkins and gene launch ravenhurst from a catapult into the sea and one of the plot points i skipped over speaking of darkness though the movie is very dark at the beginning the way that they figure out that Hawkins is not Giacomo and that he's a traitor and where the baby is. Yeah. Is because they say they tortured Fergus to death. Yeah. This poor guy. Like, Out of nowhere. Yeah. Like this, this poor character. He's like the Confederate who's been hiding in the castle for who knows yes. how long as a compatriot to the rebels. And he's trying his darndest just to get Danny Kaye's attention. Uh, to get him to figure out that they're, like, hey, you're confused. Yeah, yeah. because earlier in the movie, he, he's like, he recognizes the tune. He's like, that's an interesting tune you're singing. He's like, oh, not now. And like yeah. some understandable funny things keep getting in the way. But, you know, he's, you know, and then like every scene he's in, it's just Glynis Johns telling him like, here, get the baby to save you or like get the key or like something like that. And then they just say like casually off screen, like, oh, Fergus is dead. <laughs> yeah, he's brutally tortured to death. <laughs> They go they go out of their way in the yes. in the climactic fight to make sure that as the bad guys are being defeated like they're not being it's not like a bunch of stabbings and killings happening on screen in a giant sword fight they they stage this great thing where the bad guys are carried up the legs of the little people uh over to a catapult and just tossed into the moat because that's a way more comical way to get rid of your bad guys but they yeah. They just Poor say Fergus. Fergus is dead. <laughs> Did he reveal yeah. anything? Yes, the baby's here in the castle. This poor yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they, des- yeah, they describe the torture earlier in the movie, and it's with the torture he goes under, how they break your bones, and then your mind breaks, and you tell them whatever they want, and that's exactly what happens to Fergus <laughs> off screen. Yeah. You're like, whoa! Peel off, <laughs> peel off your nails with a hot pliers or something like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah griswold returns with his army ready to kill the rebels but hawkins shows him the purple pimpernel birthmark of the baby but griswold knees to the baby as does everybody else it's high comedy because there's a exposed buttocks even roderick himself kneels hawkins leads everybody in a song including roderick everyone they yes. all just sing together <laughs> 
even the bad guys join in. They're just like, yeah, hey. and the film ends. Yep. That's the end of the movie. Yep. Yeah. Um, like I said, uh, basically it's like a situation comedy. Like Hawkins is Urkel, Giacomo is Stefan Urkel. Yeah. So the transformation urinal or whatever he would step into. Roderick is, uh, is is Carl Winslow. <laughs> Or yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, um, we can re- we could remake this and call it the Royal Family Matters. <laughs> the Court Urkel. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, now I want to see a uh, '90s style uh, courtroom drama starring Urkel. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, we don't do. You know, these like you said, like these movies were popular, like the like the the swashbuckling movies. Where you know, they kind of advanced from adventure serials to full feature length films in the 30s and 40s, and uh, uh, here this is essentially a spoof or a parody of one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not really like going back and parodying things that were popular 10, 20 years ago and being like kind of taking the piss out of them, as the Brits would say, of like, oh well, let's go, let's do like a, a Grisham novel adaptation, but it's comedians. You know, we don't do that. No, I. I have like a whole, it's a whole other conversation, but I, I believe at the very heart of it, it's because when like with the dawn of digital, uh, like basically social media with YouTube and stuff, like everyone's first movie is a spoof movie. And so I, I just think that, you know, mm. that became way more of the, what we, the consumers were able to make and, and distribute. Uh, and so like studios just didn't have, since it wasn't, like a studio that had a corner on production, like, you know, they just, I think had to find other things to do other ways of doing comedy, I guess. But like I said, that's a whole other conversation. I just don't think. No, you know, you, you raise a really good point as we bring this to a close, you raise a really good point though. It's uh, it, even beyond like the parody stuff that we, you know, you would make or whatever. Now, as soon as something comes out, it's memeified or people are doing like funny YouTube video breakdown, video essays of it. Mm-hmm. Like you're already kind of, picking it apart right you're already interrogating the genre or the movie or the characters or whatever instantaneously or you're whereas or you're just like re-editing it and adding goofy sound effects like those yeah like, you know yeah. like the lord of the rings on crack videos or that you find <laughs> on youtube where they just were like right. it's frozen too on crack and, and that's that's what it's been reduced to so yeah right yeah you're, you're very right I think what's interesting about this movie is that later movies that would kind of semi be like this. Uh, I, uh, the whole time I was thinking about Martin Lawrence and the black Knight. Yes. They, ca- <laughs> they kind of pick a gimmick, right? They pick one, like the hypnotizing thing is a gimmick. That's just one of about 10 different twists and turns that exist in this movie. Like we've talked about repeatedly. So it's like, okay, a modern day person, you know, like Mark Twain, modern, you know, modern, modern Yankee in, you know, King Arthur's Court or whatever, modern day person goes back in time or a kid in King Arthur's Court from the 90s. Modern day person goes back in time and that's the funny thing. He's a fish out of water and then there's a little bit of confusion and falls in love with a princess or like Bill and Ted or something. And that's kind of the gimmick, right? Time travel or a dream or something, whatever. Or a knight gets hypnotized or comes under a magic spell and you know, the, the wimp becomes the hero and that would be the movie. That's just one of several (laughs) things that are in this movie. Um, and the through line of it all are, is just really, like I said, exists just to set up these vignettes of the different kind of gimmicks that the movie works through. And it really shouldn't work except for the fact that Danny Kay 
He's one of the most talented men who's ever lived. He can sing. He's a great dancer. He's, he's great with the, the tongue twisters. And he's also, uh, kind of like what I said at the beginning, believably dashing. Yes. He's, he's a believably dashing. And in the end, I'm sort of like, I think I kind of want to see a movie where he would be the Black Fox. I kind of want to see action Danny Kay because he's nimble. He's fleet-footed. So I think he could have done it in, that, in this era. Absolutely. It's it, like if Douglas Fairbanks had a sense of humor, which technically he, he did, but like a lot of his, like his Zorro, like he's laughing as he's racing around the town square with like the captain's guards chasing after him and kind of stuff like that. But all that's missing is the, is the music that, you know, you know, yeah. he can d- actually dance to, but. Well, my final question to you, I got two, is what would you give this out of 10 if you had to give it a score? I know that that feels really weird for a movie from 1955 that's a classic, but like, you know, what would you give it? Oh, I think a solid seven. Like like I said, like, it, like you, you kind of, you do have to get through a little bit of some uh, dense backstory before you get to <laughs> the fun stuff. But once, yeah, once yeah. he's pretending to be Giacomo and arriving at the castle, it's all, it, it's all great stuff from there. I'm actually, I give it an 8.5 out of 10. I'm surprised I like it more than you do, but I, I, I did. This was a movie I was introduced to by, a, not in within my family, but somebody else's family. They would watch this every uh, Christmas around the holidays. And I, it seems to me that Turner runs it during the holidays uh, still to this day. It kind of ends up becoming a holiday movie, which is why I thought it would be a perfect fit for this. Except for the fact that I, I look at my notes here, Jake. And I pre- didn't prepare these. Uh, the uh, are my own personal wench. Todd here at the video store prepared these notes for me. And uh, Todd transposed something here. The film came out December twenty fifth, nineteen fifty five. That's correct. But it came out in Japan on December twenty fifth, nineteen fifty five. It was not released in the United States until January twenty seventh. 1956, which means this episode should be coming out in January. Which means this isn't a Christmas movie at all. Which means this is one big misunderstanding, a total waste of all of our time. Good job, Todd. <laughs> If only there was another Christmas story about a baby who's hunted by a king that wants it dead. Are you talking about Mandalorian? I am talking about Mandalorian, yes. All right, Jake, I, I always appreciate it. Uh, you got up at literally the crack of dawn, your time for us to be able to do this. And you, I couldn't have done it without you. I appreciate your generous time. And uh, where can people find you? What do you got going on? Uh, what are you working on? Your writer, director, short film. I know some stuff that your wife is also writer, director, producer, extraordinaire. And you guys are, have some short films that have gone through the festival circuit. Uh, pretty exciting times for you. Tell us what you got going on, where we can find you, especially now that Twitter is dying. <laughs> I was about to say, like, well, I'm on. Well, I don't really use all that. Um, I'm on Instagram at JT Hummus, and yeah, my wife Andrew and I have been traveling to different film festivals with some projects and some scripts that have been uh, doing well, so we got a couple of those coming up as well. But if you want to find any of our stuff online, uh, my feature film Sheddings on iTunes and Amazon, um, you can also see other projects I'm working on at my website, jakethomasmakesmovies.com, jakethomasmakesmovies.com. <laughs> one of the screaming cats in the background is a star of one of those films. And Heather is a big fan of cats. So Heather, I, may I recommend to you Jake Thomas's uh, screaming cat and making its feature film debut in Shedding. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. 
All right, Jake, I always appreciate it. We're going to have to have you back on a regular episode in the not-too-distant future, my friend. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, this has been a waste of time. Binge on. Binge on.